podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, thanks for clicking play on the TMBA podcast. I got the boss man here live in studio. In studio. I'm sorry about my voice. My allergies are just in full effect. Like, <laughs> I don't think you've experienced this yet, Dan, but live here for a couple of years and then your allergies start to kick up. It's like Texas is constantly trying to kill you. Yeah. I mean, it's the allergies, it's the rattlesnakes, <laughs> it's the tornadoes, depending on what part of Texas you're in. Texas makes tough people, makes tough businesses. Increasingly, that's what we're here doing today, literally in my studio, talking about uh, so many business initiatives we've got going on. First, I want to introduce the concept of today's episode, Ian. Literally, if you know you identified a really smart entrepreneur and gave them the TMBA game plan uh, derived from not just our ideas, but the ideas of our guests over the years, things we talk about over and over again, like the thousand-day principle, the power of working on your business, not in your business, the Saturday morning side hustle, baselining in affordable locations, building profitable SaaS companies. Literally, this episode, this journey we're going to share today draws a line through all of it. So I think you're all going to really enjoy it. But before we get to that, I just want to share a few business strategic updates about what we're doing specifically at dynamitejobs.com. Another narrative we've sort of been following from day one here on the podcast, we had an episode about paying for that M, for example, at the end of the, the co. And we've been just doing a lot of interesting things. And one of the things that's popped up, Ian, is that the early returns suggest that for the first six weeks of the new year, we'd have just a major breakthrough in terms of revenue growth. The first month of the year, we put $30,000 worth of revenue into the month, and we continue to have a strong February. So it's incredibly exciting, a little disorienting because there's so many things going on. You know, What's your take on having uh, seen a dramatic jump up in revenue for us? <laughs> you never know why, right? So it's like, yeah. I'm always skeptical, right? So part of it is first of the year, people are trying to get hiring. That's what we do over at Dynamite Jobs right now. So I'm thinking, okay, is this just the beginning of the year push? And then I'm seeing like a lot of repeat customers come back and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I'm asking myself like, is this sustainable? Should we be building more infrastructure based on this? It's the constant like feeling as an entrepreneur, like you're always feeling like this is going to topple over at any minute, but then you're also excited on the trajectory. Yeah. And also, you know, we've been sharing this information with a lot of our smartest business friends, listeners of this show, and getting a lot of tough feedback too. You know, we're doing a lot of things. We're a little bit unfocused right now. Although one thing that we do have a strong focus on is we have a team around recruiting and we charge a flat rate for recruiting. And this has been doing really good. Basically this idea that, hey, using job sites is difficult, making sure maximum eyeballs across the internet see my job, and then interviewing all the people that come through and figuring out who's best. That's tough. How about I just pay you guys 4600 bucks? That's been working out really well for us. So personally, uh, one of my initiatives over the next few weeks is to put a sustained marketing process in play to really push this idea that we do flat rate recruiting. Yeah. The flat rate recruiting thing, this is an example of like an accidental business, basically. 
we talked about on the show here, but essentially we were promising placements. That was like our main metric in Dynamite Jobs at the beginning. And we hit something like 300 placements, but we were essentially not charging people anything for it. Like yeah. <laughs> in some cases, we were charging like $200 like place somebody to learn. in business. Yeah. yeah. And uh, everybody's like, uh, guys, you know you just did a recruiting product, and I'm used to paying 20% of the first year's salary for that, and you only charged me $200. So we're like, oh, yeah, that's why we're not making any money. Oh, yeah. interesting. And so it was kind of this accidental business, and now we've like put real professionals in, in seats, and actually our team has become professional at this too. So I want to give them credit as well, uh, specifically Alex, because he was kind of thrown into this position asked to make these placements and basically became an accidental recruiter in some ways. Yeah. And we've gotten enough deal flow now that we've been able to partner with essentially a full-time recruiter that we've been friends with for a decade and has tons of experience. So it's a good team coming together around that product. So I'm very you know, optimistic about how that's going to play out. One of the other crazy things that happens, we've had you know, this platform at Dynamite Jobs where people can get, post, find jobs, all this stuff. And we've been building out this uh, database of candidates. And last week, over a thousand candidates signed up for the database. Yeah. And so that's piping along. We have a little product for them, like a small membership to have a premium profile. So that's kind of coming along. It's sort of interesting. Like we got mentioned by some influencer on TikTok last week and, you know, all these new candidates come through looking for jobs. It's just stuff like that starting to pile up and getting momentum after having really focused on this. And then the, maybe the most exciting thing uh, is this week we're opening up Dynamite Jobs to companies. So if you want to create a company profile, there's a couple different early stage functions we're working on. The first is hiring, of course. If you build a company profile and you want to hire, then candidates looking at your jobs will not only be able to go to your home website, but we'll be able to look at your profile on the DJ system. You'll be able to browse a great number of candidates that are on our system, those ones that have paid for that those premium listings. You'll be able to see them. And then finally, and I think another, speaking of focus. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> I, I know it's a lot, but sometimes like you're doing things that you know are wrong. You did episodes about are wrong. And then you just find yourself doing them anyway because you just want to know. And I want to know if folks listening to this podcast want to sell their stuff on this platform. Because here's the reality is when you go and you're thinking, ah, oh, you know, I need to get a trademark done. Like, should I, you know hire a lawyer or is there like someone that's a freelancer or is there like a productized service that just does this like legal stuff for me? And like, where do you go to do that? You know, and there's, there's a bunch of places around the web. It's all, you know, but what we've found is over the years, people in our community go to each other. They go to each other to figure out, Hey, who are you using for bookkeeping? Hey, who's doing your marketing funnels right now? And that's a very similar impulse as to like going, looking for help for your business. And so I really feel like it's an interesting experiment to see if we can help businesses sell their services on the DJ platform. Because again, we have the businesses there looking to invest in this stuff. So as of last week, you could kind of sign up on the platform as a candidate. That's what we've been building so far is these profiles that are based on being a candidate and getting a job. Now we're opening that up to companies. So if you go to dynamitejobs.com, you can sign up as a company and you can do two things. Like you said, you can sign up to hire people or you can sign up to sell your products and services. So definitely, please check that out. It's early stages. The vision is that we can drive a lot of profitable traffic for people who have built productized services. If you're listening to this podcast and you've been listening to our journey the last couple of years, this probably isn't coming out of left field because uh, some of you will remember that we started a site called Dynamite Deals. 
that turned very quickly into six figures of revenue, believe it or not. And then we shut it down. I was asking myself, why did we shut this down? Are you guys idiots? Whatever. This is basically... Yes. The answer uh, yes. is yes. The answer is yes, <laughs> but this is basically the next version of that. And we do mention this at the top of the show. Obviously, we hope that you all are going to use the site or a portion of you and give us feedback and hopefully make money and hire your next team member off of it. But also because you know we get a lot of email love from this stuff. People enjoy following along, watching you know some mediocre entrepreneurs stumble their way, hopefully to uh, another reasonably successful business. So I think it's cool too. You know, part of what we talk about with this pod, Ian, is like those years in the podcast when we weren't really doing a lot interesting from a business perspective. We were interviewing interesting people, but we felt a little left out, you know? Mm -hmm. And today in this room today, discussing our pricing, our team, all this like we're not left out anymore. We were active players. And so, you know, in the coming year, we'll be able to do episodes with a lot of lessons learned and things like that. So we thought we'd keep you updated on where we're at with that. And uh, let's get moving on to today's guest boss, man. Being a part of this particular conversation was specifically inspiring to me. Today's guest, Amar Ghosh, has built a million-dollar SaaS company, something we aspire to do. And so it was like really close to the bone asking Amar, like, what were the timelines? How long did it take you? I got to know this stuff, man. And uh, he was incredibly generous with his thoughts. He is the CEO of a company called ZenMade, which is a scheduling software for maid services. He co-founded this in 2013, actually read about it on a Reddit thread, an interesting story that will emerge. Amar is also, we must mention, a member of our online community, the Dynamite Circle, or DC. And I met up with him in quite a few places, stunning places around the world. Oh, those were the days, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) In part, Amar started this business because he desired the freedom to travel the world. He could have been a highly paid employee in a lot of these cool San Francisco companies, but he desired to travel the world. In fact, we did this interview while he was in quarantine at a very fancy hotel in the wonderful kingdom of Thailand. So let's get to it. I started by asking Amar to describe the business in its current form. In a nutshell, every maid service has to know where they have to be and when. Lots of maid services use pen and paper or Google Calendar or something along those lines. And we just built a very, very specialized system that essentially manages the schedule for them. And then over the years, we've added on more and more uh, features and functionality uh, around that. We have maybe four or five full-time folks on the team, but we have very close relationships with everyone that's involved in ZenMade, and so our Slack channel is probably 25 people at this point, that we probably work with maybe three or four DCers that have like agencies and are part of like our Slack, so we can go to them for, for input. That's not uh, people that live in Washington, D.C., right? No, definitely not. Definitely not, <laughs> yeah. These are Dynamite Circle members, and it's funny you mentioned that because I've kind of do the same thing. I have like a little bit of an ad hoc DC mastermind where we like toss around like, hey, what do you think of this copy kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. And so I found that hiring DCers and other entrepreneurs has been really, really great because they also have to handle their own business side of things that usually like, you know, Bunty who does our Facebook ads is very helpful to me when I have like business questions when I'm dealing with business challenges that don't directly have to deal with like with Facebook. He has his own input because he runs his own business. And so like the two places that I'm always looking to hire from are the DC and then from our actual 
customer group. So we have, I think, six people now on the team that are actually Zenmade customers who works for us for maybe <laughs> two hours a day and provides support. What a cool idea. I've never even heard of something like that. Where did you come up with that? It's one of those things of how like your limitations when you're bootstrapping a company can sometimes turn into your strengths. So in the beginning, it was just, I didn't have the time. I didn't have like the money to actually hire someone to take over support for me full time. I was trying to find someone that could just take off, you know, maybe 50% of my load. And it just so happened that someone in our, in our customer group on Facebook was like looking for extra work or whatever. And so she'd been using Zenmade for, for a while. And I looked at that and I was like, okay, I have to train you on intercom, but I don't have to train you on Zenmade, right? She wanted a reasonable hourly and she didn't want to work more than two hours a day. And I was just like, perfect. And yeah, we ended up hiring her and I, I realized the value in that. And so now our success team, which is like our combined sales and support team, I think like six out of seven or five out of seven of them run their own maid services. Fantastic. So we got 25 people on the Slack, the four or five full-timers. Give us some more shape of the business. We just passed a million dollars in annual recurring revenue in October. So I think as of today, we're at like 92 or 93K in MRR, which is completely surreal to say. Um, I mean, we can talk about that more <laughs> later. Congrats. Yeah, it took, so cool. took us over three years to get to $10,000 a month in MRR. So to be like closing in on 100 just boggles my mind. And then the entire team is distributed, all of our full-time people. It's like, you know, there's me here. My wife helps me a lot with the marketing. She's part of the DC2, actually recently joined. Our CTO is a bit of a nomad. He's in Barcelona, but he's planning on coming to Thailand soon. COO is in Germany. And then a lot of our part-timers are actually in the US. That's just because that's where most of our customers are. So when we were looking for all the customer-facing parts of the team, uh, a lot of them ended up being, being over there. And you're in quarantine in Bangkok right now. So for those of you that don't know, when you go to Thailand, at the time we're recording this, this is uh, February 2nd, you have to stay for 14 nights. Is it still 14 nights in a, in a hotel? 15 nights. What's it like? Because you're on day seven. I mean, it's... I feel like our experience in quarantine is a bit different. I think it'd be rough for a lot of people, but you know, my, my wife and I can just hang out like all day, every day that it's what we do normally. So it's not like we're like trapped in a room together. Unlike, unlike <laughs> normal, we've already done a 14 day quarantine in South Korea. And so with that, it's like you had no control. You know, they put you in a hotel room. It was like a Ramada Inn in South Korea and they're blasting over the loudspeakers. This is not a hotel. It's a government facility, you know, that like we've taken over or whatever. You can't call the front <laughs> desk with requests or whatever. And here we paid a little bit extra and they brought us like a little crappy like exercise bike and like a yoga mat. You know, I put in an order for 7-Eleven yesterday. I mean, it's a pretty luxurious quarantine. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, Amar, like 10 years ago, if I would have told my business mentor about, you know, a case study like yours, like this guy, he's got some part-timers over here and like some people that don't work for him in a chat group and only like four people work for him full-time, like real employees, but they're like who knows where they are. And it's like a million dollar business. Like my business mentor would be like, that's not serious. You know, we talk about the gradients between like freelancers and masterminds and like full-time and part-time and outsourced and whatever. You know, you're finding even more granular ways to like get your customers involved and pay them for a little bit of input here and there. What is your sense for why that comes so naturally to you? 
I think that it's a big product of kind of being like a child of the internet. I think that it has a lot to do with luck and with timing, right? That I grew up in Silicon Valley. I went to school in Palo Alto. From a relatively young age, I remember just being online and spending time around a lot of internet forums and stuff. So I used to play poker competitively. When I think back to it, from around the time that I was probably 12 or 13 years old, I was doing things online. I was chatting with friends online. And so that became a very normalized thing for me that a lot of people ask when I'm traveling the world, don't I feel, you know, lonely? And the truth is, is that I've been online for so long that even my real life friends that are back in Palo Alto, a lot of them, you know, I might have seen them once a week, but then be chatting with them on Facebook or Gchat or whatever it is the rest of the time. And so I think that that sort of experience has really played a big part with Zenmade, both in terms of building a real community within our Slack for our actual team, but we were also the first ones to build up a really popular Facebook group for maid service owners and not just for our customers. We have one customer group and then one general industry group, and all of that stuff really came naturally to me. But honestly, I would say the timing really has to do has to do a lot with it. You know, if I tried to do this maybe three or four years earlier, I wouldn't have had access to Stripe. And so getting my billing in place would have taken six months or like eight months longer, right? I wouldn't have had access to Twilio and automatic text messages through Twilio was like our differentiating feature from day one back in 2013 we were just in the right place at the right time to take advantage of the technology that was available to us. I think your timeline is particularly interesting. Could you let us know what year you graduated from university and what were you studying at the time? I graduated in 2010 and I was doing economics and philosophy. And where did you go to school? UC Davis in California near near Sacramento. I made it horrible mistake going to Davis because of a girlfriend at the time, you know, like it was one of one of those, you know, one of those things. <laughs> and I went and I was like, you know, microeconomics is the closest thing that I can get to like a degree in entrepreneurship or in business. And that's why I chose it. Were you like a lemonade stand in the front lawn entrepreneur? Or was there like an inciting moment where you were like, man, I can't really be normal? I kind of had some entrepreneurial like blood a little bit. There was one time in elementary school I or in middle school that I found, like, it's going to sound dumb, but I found like an insanely good deal on candy at the grocery store and <laughs> like literally showed up at like 5.55 a.m., circled the lines for two hours, went to school, undercut the vending machines and made like a couple hundred dollars, right? Which, you know, like I didn't do too many things like that, but I had like my moments like that. But I think what it was is... I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad at some point, which it's kind of funny because I, I can't actually say that I recommend that book. But for me, it was a really important book that it was the right book at the right time. And what's always stuck with me is don't climb the ladder, own the ladder. And as I went further along in my formal education, I realized that the only way that I was going to make the amount of money that I wanted to in this world or have any sort of freedom was either if I stuck with and got really good with sales, which 
I like doing sales, but I hate doing sales calls 80 times a day, right? That grind is not like is not for me. And so I realized, you know, even in high school, but also also again in college, when I looked at where my degree was taking me, I realized that the only way that I was going to be able to design the lifestyle that I want was if I worked for myself in one way or another. And so with that in mind, you know, combined with reading the four hour work week, I just had that seed planted. Was there like a reason you wanted to make a lot of money and have a lot of spare time? I don't think the goal was ever to to be like rich. I think it was just that I realized I wasn't going to be happy in the rat race. That school made me miserable. And I, particularly at the time before becoming an entrepreneur, I definitely associated being a job with being miserable. And now I think that I could I could go back and get a job and I think that I could be very, very happy. Like I don't think that that's going to happen, but I have the skill set now that I wouldn't take on a job that I didn't have the potential to be the best at and wasn't going to strive to be the best at every single day. Whereas prior to starting Zenmade, I, I kind of felt like I was pigeonholed into these sort of different positions and stuff that I just didn't like, didn't enjoy. So I, I think it was more, rather than being rich, it was being financially independent. During college, I was trying a bunch of kind of the online marketing ways of making money that I made some crappy micro niche sites of like bamboo comforters and like leadcrystaldecanter.com and just like stuff like that. And so, you know, at some point that was bringing in $400 a month and then it tapered off and was at like $100 a month for a couple of years. I joined an MLM program because of a girlfriend in college, which actually taught me some stuff both about sales and about how the, how you don't get paid if you don't actually add any value to the world, you know, <laughs> which was great. I'm like, okay, like I want to own the product in the future, right? I don't just want to be like the salesperson and they say I own the product, but I get like three cents on every like friend that I lose who buys this, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so was trying all of that stuff. And then I definitely realized at some point in college that the economics and philosophy degrees were not going to take me into anything that I uh, wanted to sort of like be in. And so at that point, I started focusing a lot more on kind of like my social skills. And so after college, I bounced around to a couple of things. I was a valet, which is kind of funny that you guys were selling like valet equipment or whatever. I was actually a valet and was doing 25 hours a week um, as a valet for about a year or so after college. And then I was a tech recruiter for a very short period of time. And then after that, I took a job in Southern California doing sales for like a, a construction like printing company. The entire time that I was doing all of that stuff, I was still trying to figure out ways, but nothing really took off. Like, honestly, I don't remember any of the things that I really tried in those couple of years, but I was sort of looking at affiliate sites and things like that. I'd been doing like the entrepreneur kind of hustle. So when I read the four hour work week, I read it when it first came out in 2006, 2007. And one of the reasons that it affected me so much was that I was playing poker online and I had friends that were living in Costa Rica that had lowered their expenses. And so when I read the book, it wasn't just, oh, this is a nice concept, but it's not for me. It's, no, I have friends that have been playing poker for a little bit longer than me or just better than me that are actually doing this and living this lifestyle. And so I think that yeah. made it seem like it was, it was possible. And so then throughout college, I spent time trying to get something off the ground. Can I pause there for a moment, though? Poker. 
honestly has had an enormous impact on this community because it, it was one of those first legible ways that you could make money online if you were just like had the desire. And there's just so many people with like poker pedigree, for lack of a better term, in the online business space, even if it was just passing interest because it was just so huge there for a while. Yeah, exactly. I never considered myself to be any good at poker. Like I I was better than maybe the average person, but I always had friends that were much, much better than me. But poker has shaped a lot of my approach to entrepreneurship. When you have the experience of losing three or four months rent in a single day or in a single session while like while you're in college, it's a lot easier to be even keel when you're running a company, right? As you have a bad day in your growth, you know, like you drop like 2% in a day or something, which as a SaaS company is pretty scary, right? It doesn't sound like a lot, but but it is when you're used to growing a couple percent like month over month. And being able to just sort of react to the ups and downs, like nothing that I've done in business has come close to like the emotional just roller coaster that poker was back in the day. <laughs> and then also, I think the whole concept of expected value, I think that's something that was just drilled into my head in poker that I look at so many of our marketing campaigns and so many things that we do in the business of even if there's an 80% chance that this fails, in the 20% that it goes right, it's a 100x return. And we're going to take 10 of these chances until one of them works, as long as the downside risk isn't that we go out of business, right? And I think that that's something that shaped a lot of my entrepreneurial approach and mindset. So yeah, I credit poker with, with a lot of stuff, both in terms of lifestyle design, but also in terms of my approach to actually building the business. How do you think about expected value? I've got a couple, I I guess, kind of mental models or frameworks around various situations in like running the company, right? Is so most marketing, there's not too much of a downside risk to most marketing campaigns. Like the most risky one is a, a marketing campaign that we never ran because we have a really conservative, like Christian kind of customer base. And we we had a a video done by Fiverr Jesus. I'll send it to you after after the interview. It's it's hilarious. Everyone that's seen it has been like, it's amazing, but you can never run that to your audience. So we decided not to do that because the risk there was like was too great. But I think that the main thing when it comes to expected value is just essentially it's going into a lot of things and being okay with the fact that it might not work and that it might not work for things that are outside of your control. And being able to to have that sort of that sort of mindset or mentality before trying different experiments and before figuring out what's going to work or confirming that something is going to work, I think is very healthy because I, I just see so many of my SaaS entrepreneur friends that they don't want to do something unless they're sure that it's going to work. And that's fine, but you don't have much, much upside if you don't take much risk. So take me to the moment then when you've had the idea for ZenMade, like, It's not the idea that you'd expect someone from Palo Alto studying economics. It's in a blue-collar industry. Yeah, definitely. You interviewed Neil Perrick, who runs, I think, Made This. Yeah. Any listeners, go check out that episode. I I listened to that actually before, before jumping on today. And we have like quite similar stories there. So he started his maid service after reading a thread on Reddit. I read the same thread on Reddit, started my own maid service back in 2012. 
it wasn't titled this way, but it was effectively just how to start your own maid service if you're a digital marketer and like you don't want to do any cleaning. So a bunch of people online were like, that sounds awesome. And so me and a friend started that. And that was in 2012. And essentially, the long story short is we shut that down after about a year. And another friend of mine who I knew up in Palo Alto, he approached me and was like, hey, I saw all of the work that you guys were doing on the back end and on your website that you built for yourselves. I think that I can turn that into a SaaS and we can go and sell it to other maid service owners. And so the idea actually came from him. And then we partnered on it. And you know, he did everything product and technical. I did pretty much everything else. That's how we started. I learned a lot during the 14 months that we were running that maid service, that I think that that failure actually set me up for a lot of the success. How did it fail? What's your postmortem on it? So there were quite a few things that we were doing that weren't quite legal. And we weren't, we weren't actually aware that we didn't have like the proper paperwork to be operating. Like we, we were technically a business, but we were like training people that were contractors, which is a huge no-no in like in, in California. Our margins weren't that good. Our insurance didn't actually cover us for the stuff that we thought that it did. So when we shut it down, it was because my business partner realized that if something were to go seriously wrong, his like personal assets might actually be like online based on some of the paperwork that we had done. It was very challenging to deal with clients, with cleaners. Quality control was a big challenge. Let's just say I came away from that going never again. You know, that was <laughs> Yes, I want a software company. You know, I want to work with the same team members. I want to like sell a service that's actually unique and isn't like a dime a dozen. So it's the classic move where you start a services company and then you need software to run the company. And so you make custom software and you find out that that's the more valuable thing. Yeah, exactly. This episode is brought to you by the wonderful people over at Service Provider Pro or SPP, an agency dashboard for productized services. What could be more relevant for the audience of this episode? Look, if you want to sell services at any sort of scale, you need a system, all the way from signing up clients to project delivery. SPP gives you that system in a white-labeled client-facing portal for your agency. If you receive client inquiries about how their projects are going with Service Provider Pro, they can just log in and see all their orders, download their invoices, and manage their billing all in one place. It's the central source of truth for your team about the progress of your client work. They can see everything that's due, collaborate on orders, and send reports. It's all streamlined for selling and delivering services at scale, which I know we are all aiming to do. So let's scale it up. Many agencies have abandoned their expensive and clunky custom-built dashboards in favor of SPP and have grown past a million dollars in revenue with the help of this software. So do check out the platform over at spp.co. That's spp.co to learn more and see how it works. And a big shout out to the folks at SPP for sponsoring the TMBA pod and for being so amazing to work with. So we left Amar still in a sales J-O-B in California. He had just over a year's experience side hustling a maid service business that ultimately folded. But now it's 2013, and he's just entered a partnership with a friend to try something different. And crucially, Amar's new co-founder knows how to code. 
we actually looked into other industries first that we initially didn't think that maid services were, were going to be a good industry because they don't pay as much as if you can sign up dentists or lawyers or lots of other industries. And we also thought in a very like roundabout way that my experience as a maid service owner was actually going to be a crutch for us, that it would make it easier on us in the beginning and that we might not fully validate the idea. And so we tried a couple of other industries that I was doing cold email, I was cold calling. At some point we were like, okay, this isn't working. We're just going to go back and try maid services because we have like, we, we kind of know what they want and all that stuff. And so when we decided to do that, that's when we officially started working on, on Zen Maid. So at that point, that was, I think in April, 2013 and essentially for about six months, my co-founder Arun was just coding from, you know, 11 p.m. until 3 a.m. every day to just build this build this product. I was sending out 20 to 50 cold emails a day. I would wake up at 5 a.m. in California to cold call people on the East Coast where it was 8 a.m. And I would do that for like two hours every morning. And then I'd be on the 715 train up to San Francisco to go to my day job, come back, do strategy in the evening, and then he would get to work on the product and I would go to sleep. And we just rinsed and repeated that for probably close to two years, I would say that was pretty much the cycle to really get it off the ground. Holy goodness. Was that required? That's a good question. I think that it was required for us to succeed. But I think that there's so many different ways to succeed in business. Like I don't want someone listening to this to think that like they're going to have to do that. One of the reasons that we chose to take that approach is because it played to my strengths. I was doing sales already. It came to me naturally. You know, I had owned a maid service for long enough that I could have like a nice chat with people and add value to other maid service owners, even if they didn't end up buying. And so that was the path that we chose. I think that everyone should should definitely play to their strengths to kind of get a company started. I do think that the time and the hustle is very much necessary. It doesn't have to have to show up in the world the same way that we did, but it's definitely vital. You know, you're not going to be able to, to sit around and spend half an hour a day, you know, working on this and, and expect to really change your life in that amount of time. I guess the remarkable thing is the 38 months from inception to 10K MRR. So, I mean, you guys are in California. At 10K, you can't probably even live off of that, right? Because you have enough expenses involved this is a long period of time. And I want to underline this, that this is what we talk about all the time on the show. Like talk about some of the challenges of getting through that time. And importantly, why did you persist? So the first thing was that even though we were growing slowly, we were growing consistently and we did genuinely feel that we had product market fit. And the people that did end up signing up and paying us were happy with the product. They were happy with the development. We did feel like if we continued to grind, it was only a matter of time until we would get there. But the other thing is that we started in 2013. And I didn't go full time on ZenMate until early 2015. And during that time, of course, I was working my job, so I had my expenses covered, as did my co-founder. He, he was a PhD student at Stanford, so he was getting a stipend as a PhD student. So we didn't need the money from ZenMade. But really, to answer your question, I mean, I, I was inspired by you guys because I essentially quit my job. I went to Thailand, and I just completely dropped my expenses. So when I, when I quit my job in the U.S., 
Zenmade was making $8,000 a month. We had quite a bit of money in the bank because we hadn't been paying ourselves at all up until that time. I started taking a salary of $1,000 a month and just went to Thailand and was just like, I'm going to grind it out full time. And I was honestly happy. You know, I would much rather be grinding it out. And each sale was so much more gratifying because it was selling, you know, my product or like our product. I realized that if I could live in Thailand and be happy for $1,000 a month, that that would give me all the freedom that I would need in the future. And of course, like my goals were to make way, way, way more than that. But it's really nice knowing that at any point, I can just hop on a flight like I'm going to do next Friday, go to Chiang Mai, and live really well for a very small amount of um, of money. In your case, did you take a look at the overall market size? Did you guys do that kind of math? No, never, never did that kind of math. I still get asked about that all the time. I honestly just don't think that it matters. I think that when you're running a bootstrapped business, I think it's a very binary question of are there enough businesses or potential customers out there that if you get a small segment of the market that you can, you know, pay for your lifestyle and and like and build a successful business. And to me, it's just a straight yes or no question. There are so many house cleaning businesses in the US. I don't care what the exact number is. If it's a hundred thousand, that's fine, right? If it's if it's a million, even better. I always try to filter information for does this information actually inform any of my decisions? And if it doesn't inform any of my decisions, then it's entertainment. And that's okay. Sometimes I read things about, I don't know, the stock market where it's just like, this is not going to impact me at all. Maybe it'll expand my thinking a little bit, but it's not going to affect any decision that I'm going to be making in the short-term future. If there's a million business owners out there that could potentially pay us. It doesn't change my marketing strategy. It doesn't change my product strategy. The only thing is if there's like 50, you know, if you know, if there's only 50 potential customers out there. Then... There was enough. Yeah. Okay. So now you're following another, you know, interesting parallel here, which is you have your first 38 month period. So we're putting ourselves into 2016 timeframe, right? Yeah. You peel out, take your thousand dollar salary, move to Thailand. Now, as we sit here in February 2021, we're talking about a 10x factor. And that, I want to underline for the audience, is a very common pattern in the universe. It's a very common pattern in the TMBA universe. I mean, it's amazing. How do you do it? <laughs> it's, it's slow and steady wins the race. It's obviously an oversimplification and a bit of like of a cliche, like so many things are. But in a lot of ways... I look at what we've done and the main difference between us and our competitors that started around the same time is that we've continued to show up every single day and try to do what's right by not just our customers, but by the entire audience. And we've just continued to be present until people trust our brand. And now we're the go-to software in the industry. So if someone's looking for software, they're going to come and trial us. Doesn't mean that, that we're right for them but they're going to come and trial us. And that has a lot to do with just how much people see me on the Facebook groups and how I answer questions when they go, you know, does anyone have a cancellation policy they can share? I go, yeah, here, here's mine from like from, from back in the day, you know, adjusted as necessary. Then I go out of my way to really help people and do the kind of value add thing until people are, are ready to sign up. In terms of actions, 
one of the reasons that I started ZenMade was actually because I wanted to get into marketing after listening to a lot of podcasts back in 2013, and no company would give me a shot at even the most junior marketing role, that I'd been pigeonholed into a sales position. And so when we started ZenMade, I looked at it as a very risk-free proposition because it was essentially a canvas for me to just try a bunch of marketing things and to learn by doing, which is the best way that I that I learn. As a longtime listener of this podcast, for me, everything changed when I just began to look at business as a series of systems and that every day if I could like do the work as in working in the business, but also set aside time to maybe spend 30 minutes building one part of any system in the business better and just keeping that consistent action. That for me is when when everything began to change. And even if ZenMade hadn't worked out, if we went under tomorrow, I would still consider ZenMade to be a success because of how different a person that I am now because of the opportunity that it's essentially given me. And so over the years, We've just continued to stack on more and more marketing things while also consistently improving the product. And so a couple of key moments were in 2017, we launched a huge redesign after probably spending a year and maybe sixty dollars or $70,000 on a redesign that just revamped the entire software. And what was the inspiration to do that? It was essentially that the initial version that we'd built had taken on a lot of technical debt and design-wise just wasn't up to par. We felt that even though it was working, we didn't feel like it was a product that was going to be able to take us over maybe 25 or 30k a month. Also, it was just hard to be taken seriously when we had competitors that were much better designed, even if they weren't as full of features. And so we launched that, and that made a huge difference in two ways. So the first thing is that that relaunch went absolutely terribly and we lost 40% of our like recurring revenue and our recurring clients in maybe a six-month period after that. That was just an entire circus. We critically took down our software and like our clients' businesses from Monday to Thursday, right? <laughs> Which for a made service is pretty bad. It destroyed trust with our brand and all of that stuff. But that launches in, in a lot of ways what saved the company because even though the clients at the time really lost faith in us and we lost a lot of them, every single new client that signed up after that that didn't run into any of the issues around the actual swap between the versions, they absolutely loved the new software and we immediately saw our, our growth and our conversion rate increase from there. So that was a big one. The other big uh, big event that we had is we ran the first virtual summit for maid services. And so, you know, I'm very big into the digital marketing and internet marketing communities. And so I always see, you know, that virtual summits were really popular back in 2015, and now they're completely saturated. Well, we're in a very old industry, and so I can look at trends that are happening now in internet marketing, and I can go, okay, that's going to be the hot new thing in like two or three years. And so everyone thought that we were industry innovators and all of that stuff. But with that, I mean, we brought together 45 industry experts that are made service consultants, coaches, you know, accountants that only work with made services. We brought together just the who's who of the industry, ran a five-day event online. I think we had 3,000 people 
that actually signed up for that. We charged for replays after and made maybe $10,000 or something along those lines. And we were essentially the talk of the industry for about a two-week period. It literally positively impacted every like individual number throughout our funnel. And that lasted for probably like six months. And so now we do that annually. But I do just want to emphasize that like, even though those were two big events, really, it's just been consistently showing up and just doing the work and making just small improvements that it hasn't really been any one thing. You know, if we hadn't done all of the consistent hard work along the way, neither of those two major events would have made a big difference to our results. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy on pricing your product. In like the SaaS world, you have competitors that you can click over and you can like see what their price is, see what your price is. You have costs. Like there's all these theorists that write in the SaaS community about, you know, if you have your product price at this range, you're bound to be dead and churned out forever. So let us know what your perspective is on the sort of uh, theory of pricing in SaaS products. I think that it changes a lot over time. When you're first getting started, gaining momentum is more important than optimizing your pricing. So the pricing advice or best practices that I follow now for Zenmade are very different than the ones that we followed in the beginning. So when you're first starting out, I think that having flat rate pricing and just making it as simple as possible and just trying to get people on board and actually paying you money for your service is by far the most important thing. Once you have momentum, then you can focus more on optimization. So I do think that in the long run, you need to have some sort of usage-based pricing or some sort of pricing where you have the ability to grow with your customers. That as your customers become more successful, you become more successful. And so Zenmade initially was $49 a month, $99 a month, or $199 a month, depending on a couple different variables. And now every single person starts at $49 a month. And for each additional cleaner that they add, we charge an extra $9 a month. And so what that's done is that's That's aligned us with their success. And some people don't like that. And that's okay. But you know, we do have to decide what's best for us. But in a lot of ways, we have a great justification for it in terms of our customers that now, you know, we have all these resources on helping them hire better cleaners, and how they can build a more successful business. And before we were kind of doing that almost pro bono, but as a form of marketing, whereas now we can begin to funnel our current customers to that content and go, hey, you know, this is what might be next for your maid service so that we can help them to continue to build a more and more successful business and that we we reap a small reward every time that they're successful enough and they add on enough clients to actually hire someone new. The bigger that you get, the more that churn affects you. So 2% churn or 5% churn when you're making $10,000 a month you know, could be better, but it's not a huge deal, right? That you're losing you know, $500 a month If you have decent marketing, you're probably going to make up that margin. We're now closing in on $100,000 a month. And so a 5% churn rate is $5,000 a month that we have to make up. That's a lot of customers for us to bring on every single month. And so when we changed our pricing from flat rate to usage-based, now what happens is we still churn 5% of customers every month, but the existing or the the remaining 95%, they become more successful every single month. And so they might go 
from 95% of our revenue to being what was 98% of our revenue. And so now we lose only 2% of our revenue every month. And in order to scale a SaaS business long term, you have to find a way to make those metrics work. And of course, the holy grail is to make it so that every month your existing customers pay you more money than they did the month before, even taking into account the customers that that you lose. And so that's something that we're trying to do. But, you know, it's called a holy grail for a reason, right? It's not not an easy <laughs> one. And then just quickly there, just because I've been writing about it again a lot, a lot on Twitter, we just released a freemium plan actually for ZenMade. So what we did is we realized that our competitors that are going to come in and are going to take business off of us, they're going to take business off of us because their software is maybe a little bit better than ours, right? Or their software is good enough, but they're going to be offering it for $19 a month, where now because we're established, we need to charge $49 a month plus like usage based. And so what we did is we tried to come in and build a moat by adding in a true free for life plan that will essentially stop a large percentage of maid service owners from choosing the cheaper paid options over us until they're ready for the full suite of tools. And so, yeah, it's a good question because I've been thinking about pricing and pricing strategy nonstop for probably like six months now. (laughs) Why? Mainly because I realized that pricing as you get bigger and bigger in a SaaS makes more and more of a difference to your bottom line, and it's not as important in the beginning. And so when I look at our results for 2019, we changed our pricing in the beginning of 2019. And if we hadn't changed our pricing, we would have ended the year at, I think, $48,000 a month. And instead, we ended the year at $65,000 a month. And that was due just to pricing. We signed up the same number of customers, but because we were able to monetize better and to align our customers' success with our success, that made a bigger difference than any marketing campaign that that we ran. It made a bigger difference than improving any conversion rate anywhere along the funnel. Is that called progressive pricing? Because I've heard this from a, a number of SaaS founders that one of their regrets is not implementing that sooner because, you know, we don't have that right now, for example, on our product where, you know, you can use it at like a hundred times and you pay the same amount as the person who uses it once. Yeah, exactly. I know a bit about what you guys are dealing with with Dynamite Jobs, and I think that charging $99 a month for your your like initial customers to just get some people paying and using the system, I think that that's the right way to go. But it's also good for you guys to be cognizant of the fact that in the long run, and probably sooner rather than later, but not right right now, is that you do <laughs> want to get to the usage-based pricing where it's $99 a month and then each job that you post is $5 or whatever. And so someone that posts 100 right. pays you considerably more than someone that's using the same service and pays only like, you know, 4 or whatever. It's definitely something to consider for the future and I can virtually guarantee that you're going to get there, but there's a timing to it. Speaking of timing, I appreciate you spending your time with us here today. Just a couple more questions. The first is what is the reality of having like learned all these ideas, taken the concepts, applied them, and you're a success story? You know, what is it? You know that if you had to like talk to yourself at the beginning when you were armed with those concepts, that maybe is like different about the reality of where you're at than you might have dreamed of, the dreams that motivated you in those early days. 
if I could go back and like tell myself anything, it, it would just be like take, have a stronger bias towards action, right? That I think that for most people that are listening to this, you know, chances are this is one podcast of many that you listen to or like audio books and stuff like that. And the learnings that you get from all of these things completely change when you have your own experiences to actually relate to what we're talking about here today. And so for me, you know, I wasn't that big of a reader and everything back in the in in the day. And while I do wish that I'd started reading earlier, I'm also glad that I didn't until I had really started taking like massive action towards making this like a, a reality. And I feel like because I have that experience now, I'm able to go through so much more content and like pick out, oh, that's that's useful to me or, oh, that's interesting, but it worked differently for me and being able to recognize the differences in sort of what I'm like consuming and everything. The other thing just just really quickly there that I think that is is quite like underrated. And again, this is more if you're already taking action, but I think that rereading and reconsuming content, I think is massively underrated. It's like the saying goes of, of no man crosses the same river twice for the man is different and the river has changed, or I don't know the exact wording, but something along those lines. And I've actually found that there are so many books that I've read that you add a couple years of life experience and you reread the book and it just reads like a completely different, I mean, whether it's fiction, it might read like a completely different, like different novel or when it's like business books and stuff, there's so many business books that that I reread and I find that that rereading them, I get more out of them the second time and different things out of them the second time than when I initially read them just because I have more things to relate it to. Is there an example of one book you could toss out to us? Two books actually would be uh, Principles by Ray Dalio. Read it, begin implementing it, read it again re-implement or whatever. Uh, another big one is uh, The Ultimate Sal Sales Machine by Chet Holmes. Um, that's a, just a timeless classic. Classic, dude. Yeah. He's like, yeah, you, you seem like a disciple based on your story here today. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's one that I've, I've reread like a couple of times. Every time I reread it, I'm like, oh yeah, I do that. I do that. Ah, crap. I forgot about that detail. Like it's probably time to incorporate that in. The other thing that I've realized that is very different from my younger self is I very much believe that systems set you free, that I no longer have a calendar that I really have to follow. You know, I have maybe three or four calls that I'm obligated to be on every single week and that's it. And then I have a clear calendar and I do think that's kind of the dream. But in the past, I was like, oh, like, it'd be nice to just have no responsibilities or whatever. And now it's no, I have responsibilities, but I've built the systems in place to take care of those responsibilities without me personally having to be involved. And so I'm not systematized at all. And yet all of the systems that we've built over the years are what allow me to be unsystematized. And when I was younger, I tried to be like, okay, like, I don't need systems. And it's like, no, like you, you need the systems in order to essentially in order to not need them, which sounds weird. Right. But I think that, that was a huge realization for me. It's remarkable. The bigger your business gets, the less you have to do to make it run. Yeah, exactly. It's a flywheel, you know? Big ups to my guy, Amar Ghosh for coming by the show. Mars in quarantine right now, Ian, spending a lot of time on Twitter, sharing some entrepreneurial uh, wisdom nuggets. Check it out. He's very active. His Twitter handle is it's just Amar. So it's 
just AMAR, and that's A-M-A-R. That, along with all the other resources discussed today, will be in the show notes, including a uh, link to an article on what progressive pricing is, boss man. Not only did I look it up, but actually, you know, like I said at the top of the show, what Amar is going through right now is the exact sort of conversations we're having. It gave me some advice on how we can change our pricing. We had a strategy call based on what Amar said to us. So follow him on Twitter. This guy is awesome. He offered a free phone call to people who listen to the show. Take him up on it. You know, smart dude. This is like a very DC-ish kind of situation where entrepreneurs get a lot of benefit from sharing their knowledge with their peers. It's it's really rewarding. So it's really cool. It's funny, like the the stories of entrepreneurs coming on here and like doing those free, you know, shout out offers yeah. like Jesse did it. Jesse Hanley came on the show and did it. And then it had this like domino effect where like I'm talking to people that I just met and they're like, oh, I took Jesse up on that. Mm-hmm. And like, here's what he told me. And so it's just this cool connection that happens in the community of people helping each other out and you see the positive benefits sort of domino out. So really cool, Amar, and congrats for uh, your success. By the way, one of the coolest uh, things that's happened to us recently was machine learning data scientists reached out to us. Shout out. Uh, yeah. Shout out. I'll leave his name out of here because Shout I'm not out sure Anon. <laughs> what the plan is for him. But uh, yeah, he, he reached out. He heard about like what we were doing over at DJ and then uh, he had some things to offer us. So really cool. Appreciate yeah. that. That's awesome. It's a give and take. Hopefully you got a lot out of today's episode. We love doing it for you. Thanks for listening. As always, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.